Today I'm joined by Aaron Peck. Aaron is a member of the training team at the National Centre for Circus Arts. Aaron, how are you doing? Nice to see you, James. Thanks for inviting me along. So I wanted to get you involved in this conversation because today we're going to be talking about training over the summer holiday period. We're coming close to the end of July now and most of the circus schools around the UK, circus schools around the world, uh, are going to be closing their doors to students or at least some of their students over the summer. And I thought it might be good to have a bit of a discussion about how best for those students to manage their time while they don't have access to their building, to their tutors and uh, to their coaches. So Aaron, you haven't just been working with us, you've worked with a whole variety of different sports throughout your career. Would you mind just talking through a bit of, I guess, what, what you do, what you have done in the past with various sporting organizations, what your role has been, and how that transitioned into working in a service school? Thank you, James. Yeah, to give you bit of a better understanding I started my career as a sports scientist working in team sports so uh, specifically rugby and football um, and very much enjoyed that challenge um, yeah, collecting data on a day-to-day -day basis yeah, uh, applying that to the training yeah, that the uh, players would be expected to uh, do yeah, and then trying to provide yeah, additional training programs to maximise yeah, the physical qualities that were expected in those sports. Um, uh, after about uh, six years doing that, I was, you know, I was lucky enough to uh, win a role working for an organisation called the English Institute of Sport, which provided uh, sports science uh, and medical support to athletes training for and returning from Olympic Games. Um, uh, that was a fantastic opportunity to work with some amazing practitioners and some inspiring coaches um, in sports as diverse as um, you know, judo, uh, track and field, uh, rowing and hockey. Um, after two Olympic cycles, so eight years, um, uh, I wanted to challenge myself in a slightly different way uh, and you know, I got the opportunity to work with some professional tennis players, um, providing support for those players on the road and back at their training bases. Um, yeah, preparing for tournaments on different surfaces in different uh, yeah, kind of environmental temperatures um, yeah, yeah, for matches of yeah, undetermined length against opponents they've never played against so there were some real challenges there and it was during my time there yeah, um, yeah, looking for opportunities to develop my practice yeah, I happened to be at um, uh, the Edinburgh Festival and I went to see a circus show uh, and I was uh, amazed at the physicality uh, of the performers. Um, I took the opportunity to read the program notes and yeah, saw that some of the artists had trained at this place called the Circus Space in central London. And having lived in London all my life, I didn't know about it. I didn't know where it was. And I thought I would take the opportunity to go and visit. Um, I did and uh, fell in love with it you know, on that first visit. Uh, had the opportunity to spend time um, doing some presentations to the students, uh, even got the opportunity to you know, present to the teachers uh, and 18 months or so after that um, I was contacted and asked if I would be interested in taking on a role uh, as a physical trainer you know, at the National Centre for Circus Arts, which it became known as. Um, and three years later here I am. In terms of the nature of my role here at the National Centre for Circus Arts, I suppose it's best described in three parts. Firstly, I work closely with the degree team um, to deliver classroom and gym-based sessions to inform and improve the students' physical capacities. Secondly, um, yeah, working in collaboration with the teaching team to devise discipline-specific training programmes for the students. And then thirdly, triaging the aches and pains the students get and a commonplace with um, the circus performers um, referring them to our external physio provider uh, and then interpreting and, and uh, um, delivering that rehab program to you know, return the student to training and performance as soon as possible. 
Awesome. So pretty diverse wealth of experience in terms of the kinds of people you would have worked with as well as the kinds of training patterns and training programs you would have worked with. And hopefully we'll be able to get some good insight in what rest and recovery looks like maybe across the athletic world as well as into the circus world to try and help us come to some conclusions on what we might want to do when we have a period of time where we don't get to train. Absolutely. So, Aaron, as you mentioned, two of your roles that you had when you were working in various sports were sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach. I think these are two areas that are really useful to look at when we think of providing innovative solutions for circus performers, specifically because it's driven around collecting data and performance metrics. In sports, there's a lot of data already being collected that we can use when we approach things to see, are we doing things right? Are we doing things uh, efficiently? Can we be doing them better? And so I wanna draw on that first before we start looking at how we might deal with circus specifically. So in your experience in the sports world, First of all, why is rest and recovery even important in the first place? Why, why do we need to think about it uh, when we're training? It's a great question, James. And um, yeah, it's, it's actually the kind of forgotten training variable. Um, yeah, in that um, yeah, people are yeah, used to doing the work. Yeah, and generally they think that the more work that they do or the higher intensity of the work that they do, yeah, the, the, the rewards, yeah, the adaptation is going to be yeah, quicker and better. Uh, when actually it's in you know, periods of, of rest and the recovery process that those adaptations actually occur. So it's an absolutely you know, crucial part of the training process and the one that most people you know, you know, tend to spend the least time thinking about or applying. If we try and put it in context of a student here at the National Centre for Circus Arts, you know, uh, a student will go into a class, um, you know, they will be exposed to uh, a training stress uh, and depending upon you know, their own training history, how, uh, how long they've been practising that skill, um, you know, how you know, strong they are, what their training capacity is um, you know, and how long that training stress is applied for that will dictate how long they then need to recover for until they can then do you know, another class another session you know, or recover to their you know, their pre-activity levels yeah and does that always look the same so I imagine in sports given that people are gearing up towards things like competitions or there's seasons for competitions is that rest and recovery period likely to always look similar or is there time where people need to be doing more or less activity and does that change what kind of rest they need or does it just change the length of rest that they might need? Yes, it's a good observation. The, yeah, a lot of sports do have very much more formal training days, very you know, kind of uh, regimented training weeks and very organised you know, competitive seasons. Um, so the students here at the National Centre for Circus Arts yeah, and uh, professional performing artists don't necessarily have the, yeah, that same yeah, structure available to them. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't uh, apply the same uh, sports science approach to their, you know, to their own training, to their own training days and uh, their own periods of training um, before, their, you know, before periods of high intensity you know, performances. Yep, and when we say rest as well, I'm curious about what exactly does that look like? Does that just mean do nothing for some athletes? Does rest just mean lower levels of activity? Or is it always just rest means no training, plenty of sleep, and, and that kind of thing? Well, you, you know, rest, yeah. The word rest can be applied you know, to, to quite a few different things. So you can think about the rest that you would take between sets of squats in the gym. Um, you could think about rest in terms of between that session in the gym and going into class. You could think about rest between that training day that you've done and the next training day. Or you could think about the rest that you're taking between training weeks or between training cycles. So it's important you think about the word rest yeah, uh, and how it can apply uh, across your um, yeah, training discipline. So you might take rest between your sets of squats in the gym 
you definitely take rest between doing your squats and your pull-ups uh, and likewise you take rest after your gym session has finished yeah, and before you then uh, started your yeah, uh, discipline class similarly you take rest after your discipline class before your movement class and at the end of the day you take rest um, before you start your next day and that's just as a, as a micro cycle of one day um, if you think about yeah, longer periods of, yeah, of training whether it be one week yeah, or one month yeah, or one yeah, calendar year there are lots of opportunities to, uh, to plan rest yeah, and yeah, it's important that it is planned rather than yeah, kind of left to chance yeah, that way you're maximising your adaptation and minimising the risk of overreaching in terms of your training Okay, so great. So actually what you're saying is the better able you are to plan your rest, the more efficient your training is going to be. You're going to see more results that you want in probably a shorter time frame. It really is a key part of the training process. And yeah, in my experience, um, when students and aspiring athletes and professional athletes, uh, when they know they have rest coming, they can apply their efforts accordingly. If they just think it's going to be continuous training, continuous training, continuous training, it's very difficult to maintain intensity all the time. So even if it is your, um, your intercept rest or between session rest or between day rest, I think it's important that they know yeah, that it's rest yeah, and they should treat the rest yeah, with respect to maximise yeah, yeah, the, the, the results of their training. Yeah, that's really interesting to think of it from the kind of very small scale in in between one day the macro cycle of one day as you said and also on a larger scale so given that we're going to be talking about summer holidays and for us that's kind of a six-week break i know back home in ireland where i'm from generally we talk about an eight-week break over summer and that can be different in many countries but generally we're thinking in the scale of a number of weeks I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that in sport. So first of all, even do breaks of that magnitude even happen? Like, Are there any sports that you know of where people might actually take a full six-week break from training, or is that very unlikely to occur? Each sport will have its very own unique structure of yeah, matches and tournaments uh, uh, and competitive yeah, cycles. Um, however, yeah, most sports will include an off-season um, and that could be as little as two to four weeks uh, it could be slightly longer um, depending upon where it fits within that competitive size so we talked about Olympic sports earlier yeah because the Olympics happens every four years you know world championships every two years yeah they can be slightly bigger off-season periods for some of those athlete groups but it's also important to think about the difference between off-season and pre-season so the amount of time that you know, players and teams are not competing would be comp you know, considered their off-season. However, some of that might also be you know, the pre-season preparations for the new season. So um, the length of time that they are not doing anything would probably be quite short. Yeah. Then they would be graduating and ramping up their training in preparation for the new competitive cycle. So uh, a break of six to eight weeks would probably be a you know, uh, of non-activity would probably be a long, longer period than you know, you'd see in most sports. Um, I'm thinking about my time in, in tennis, for example. Yeah, players. Yeah, the best players would take a, a six-week period of training. Yeah. Uh, prior to the start of the new season and the very start of that six week period might be complete rest and then they would gradually increase their training uh, frequency and intensity to make sure that they are ready for that first tournament uh, likewise at the end of the football season players and the coaching staff and the support team would you know, leave the training ground you know, for a couple of weeks you know, then they would start thinking about you know, a return to the training ground and gradually increasing their you know, you know, training frequency and intensity in preparation for the new season that doesn't really uh, that doesn't really include people who are injured. Um, yeah, injuries shouldn't be considered yeah, off season. Yeah, that that would be unfair uh, because obviously if you're injured, you will be expected to yeah, to yeah, do your rehabilitation yeah, uh, and gradually increase the 
yeah, yeah, the, the, the challenge and the volume of training that you are doing to get you back to uh, return to training and then to return to play and then to return to comp- competition. In the worst cases, you know, uh, if players you know, get injured, you know, sometimes their injuries can be quite severe, particularly if they require surgery. And those periods of time could be you know, at or around six to eight weeks. Sometimes in the worst injuries, it could be longer. Um, but they wouldn't be um, you know, periods of complete inactivity. They'd be expected to be following their rehabilitation programs you know, uh, a number of times per day you know, and you know, throughout the week. So that's definitely not... You know, um, a period of, uh, of off training that would be a lower uh, volume of training gradually increasing in, in uh, intensity and frequency to a point that they can go back to training and then go back to um, competitive play. In often cases uh, getting injured towards the end of a competitive season is the worst time to get injured because yeah, both the player and then the support staff are going to be yeah working yeah and training through yeah that yeah initial period of yeah off training yeah and yeah uh, and rest so um yeah it's definitely not a holiday for those guys yeah that makes sense with injuries that actually it's it's not a holiday it's not a day off you're trying to recover and rehabilitate something to get back to uh hopefully the point that you were at prior um, I was wondering as well, though, with these off-season weeks off, are athletes expected to maintain any level of training in that time? Would that normally be considered time to just go off do something completely different, not related to sport, not related to phys- physical activity? Or would a lot of them find that actually they still would throw in the odd workout occasionally anyway? Or... Uh, how, do, how does that kind of off-season look for a lot of those athletes? I think it's important to remember that professional athletes have been training continuously for years um, and therefore to ask them to stop training completely for any length of time is uh, probably unlikely to happen. So um, they're going to do something. They're going to want to maintain yeah, some level of activity. They're going to want to maintain some of those physical qualities they've spent years developing. Um, so I tend to find if you provide them with a little bit of structure for that, they're quite yeah, good at adhering to it. Um, there is a danger if you let them choose what to do and when to do it, they may do too much. Um, and likewise, there will be people that don't do any. So providing a little bit of structure and a little bit of you know, suggestion you know, to some of the training that they might undertake would be quite good. I tend to find that um, giving them options of cross-training is quite good, so something that's away from their normal type of training. So yeah, if I think about some of the team sports that I've worked in, yeah, if they're used to playing football or rugby or hockey for you know, nine, ten months of the year, give them something that doesn't look like their normal sport uh, but might keep them you know keep them uh, active and it might be quite fun so you know whether it be going swimming whether it be going on a you know a hike in the hills whether it be uh, rock climbing or doing yoga classes something to maintain activity something they might not normally get a chance to do and it might actually be quite fun um, yeah and also you know maintain some of those physical qualities I think is quite important it is important to make the distinction though between a professional athlete and a student artist and yeah as much as the training that the students do here at the school is extremely physical um, they are still students and when they finish a term or when they finish uh, the year they'll go back home you know, to spend time with their you know, friends and family and you know, probably have part-time jobs to keep them um, busy during the summer and they might not have the same access to training facilities that a professional athlete might. So um, I have provided students in the past with programmes to follow, um, but sometimes it's difficult for them to actually adhere to it based upon where they are, what they've got access to, how much the, uh, the cost of that access is, um, yeah, and the timing of it based upon their part-time work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The whole professional sports world is built around... 
being able to do this and making sure that their athletes are able to access whatever they want whenever they need it and for circus just by the fact that it's an art uh, already we're struggling in the UK with uh, access to funding for stuff like that but also being a student you're going to have a lot of other responsibilities I know students in our school have jobs to go to even throughout their term time and uh, and outside and uh, there can be quite a lot of other factors that maybe might mean that rest might be the better option anyway if they have a lot of additional stressors in their life maybe. It was quite eye-opening it was quite eye-opening my first term here at school um, you know, I would conduct um, you know, basic physical screening to identify uh, movement dysfunctions and there was a particular student um, was very physically able um, very committed to their discipline training yeah, and at the end of a long day you know, would go and undertake um, uh, some uh, nannying work and when they finished you know, working you know, as a nanny they'd go and you know, go to their bar job uh, they'd finish their bar job at kind of uh, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning uh, go home, steal five hours sleep before they got up you know, for the next day of training uh, and that would be a five, six days a week um, and it doesn't take many weeks of that cycle for you know, that student to be completely exhausted uh, and uh, unable to complete you know, uh, the simplest of gym sessions or the, um, you know, or the number of you know, discipline classes that they wanted to be able to do um, but to be able to fund the degree and to live close to the school you know, they couldn't really you know, give up the part-time work that they had so yeah finding that balance between yeah physical stress yeah uh, yeah emotional challenge yeah and practical requirements yeah is yeah it's quite you know, quite a tricky one yeah for sure I think living in London in general is just a catalyst for all kinds of stress uh, but that's one of the other reasons why I think it's good to have this conversation about circus specifically as I said before you, your background in sports is really useful because there's been a lot of research that's gone on and people have sort of crunched the numbers and figured out what works but um, in circus back when I first started to get into it I was a gymnastics coach and I really got the vibe of we were all looking to, to other places to try and say hey let's look at what gymnasts do let's look at what dancers do and let's just try and copy it and let's see if we can do the exact same thing because they've got a system that really works so if it really works for them it probably really works for us and over time over my years and being at this school I've really started to think and well find out and discover that that's not really the case the gymnastic system worked really great for gymnastics and because it fulfilled all of their needs and in circus now we have to look at all right well what is different about circus what are the different needs of our students as well as different needs of uh, their professional careers once they get into that so i thought now we might just talk a little bit about what difference what similarities or differences there might be in circus for one I know from my own experience work being a student in this school and being a professional is that cycle of competitions is never really so well defined you might be a performer and you know that you're gonna go on a summer tour with a traditional circus and actually if that's the case then the times when you're working and performing are going to be really well defined or you might be a performer that gets most of their earnings from Christmas or from summertime and then the rest of the year it might just be picking up little bits so sometimes you can have an idea of what you're aiming for but you are never really going to be 100% sure you know work can come up here and there so you can't say all right I'm going to work really hard now because I might have a rest in the future uh, that doesn't necessarily work because if that one job comes up well maybe I'm not going to get another job for a while so I gotta I gotta take that job um, I think that's a really big difference compared to athletes I think it's very rare that 
uh, an athlete might have, oh, here's a surprise competition that we never thought was going to happen, maybe this year uh, due to COVID and Tokyo Olympics changing, that might have uh, thrown a curveball at quite a few people in their careers. But I think in circus, we really have to be aware of the different rules that we're playing by in terms of what we want to get as a performer. I was wondering from your perspective as well about the difference between being an artist or an athlete. So in most athletic sports, apart from a little bit of variation and maybe people's styles of how they like to do things, because the sport has a strict set of rules, generally the the body types, the the movement patterns are always going to be fairly similar. People are going to know what the most efficient way of moving is to perform well in a specific sport. Whereas in the arts, it's kind of anything goes. And in fact, maybe working in a way that's unique to your own body could be seen as really great. Working in a way that specifically makes it harder, like so that a way that makes it less efficient for you to work might actually be the aesthetic you're trying to achieve or it might even be trying things despite knowing that those movement patterns from a sports science or an anatomical point of view might actually be harmful do you think there's a difference from your perspective when you're here working as a kind of strength and conditioning coach is it different working with athletes versus artists or do you find that actually the rules are the same? You're just treating the individual for the skill set that they have. That's a really great question, James. I, I often reflect about my journey to this point and, and, and uh, working at the school. Uh, I didn't take the job because yeah, it's close to home. That's convenient, but that wasn't the only reason. Yeah, I didn't take the job because yeah, uh, it's an amazing building and fantastic training space. Yeah, um, although it is, uh, I took the job because yeah, when you walk in and you see the diverse range of uh, disciplines that the students are either exposed to or are training at, it's yeah, truly impressive. Um, from a yeah, from a professional perspective. The opportunity to understand more and support performers in such a wide range of um, uh, skills is, yeah, is one I've craved for, yeah, yeah, a large part of my career. Um, and it's still amazing that, um, unlike other sports, where if you go to join a football academy, you've probably already been playing football for a number of years. If you go to join a rugby academy, you've probably been playing rugby, even if it's only at school level, for a number of years leading up to that point. However, when students start school here, they could come from any number of backgrounds. We have had students from physical theatre, from ballet, from break dancing, from parkour, um, or from a circus school nationally, yeah, or from anywhere around the world. And they're within still a challenge because they're culturally... Uh, used to a different type of training or a different intensity of training or a different volume of training. So there's all these things to try and consider. Um, there's still a raised eyebrow when I refer to the students as performers or when I talk about them as athletes and not artists. But the nature of what they do is extremely physically demanding and as such I try to apply the same training principles that I would if they were preparing for an Olympic Games or from yeah, um, a match at the weekend. Yes, yeah, so actually while the Olympians, you might have multiple athletes all training the same repetitive patterns with circus artists, each individual circus artist is probably practicing their own set of repetitive patterns. Each individual circus artist is probably working in a way where they do things in their their way they're doing the same type of thing over and over again and the variation is actually just each different artist might look quite a bit different to the last absolutely the beauty of the first term of the first year at the school uh, is that all the students are exposed to a broad range of disciplines after that point they start to prefer and to specialize in certain disciplines where they will end up doing certain moves or certain types of training 
far more frequently. Uh, that's okay if it's not dissimilar to their background of training. The bigger problems exist when they choose a discipline that is very removed from their previous training history. So a dancer suddenly choosing to do yeah, hand balancing or hand-to-hand -hand work, yeah, they've probably not spent as much time on their hands as a, uh, a breaker might have done. Um, but likewise, a breaker who spent a lot of time on the floor might not have spent as much time hanging from their hands in an aerial discipline. Um, so whilst it's great that the students are able to choose their pathway, um, it does bring with it some problems in terms of the training programs that they will have to then undertake to prepare them for the rigours of that new discipline. I've really enjoyed watching the creative process too um, and particularly manipulating technical training to provide a physical training adaptation. Um, so take, taking skills and tricks, uh, changing the order in which they're done, yeah, increasing or decreasing the volume of repetitions, um, training when fresh versus when fatigued to provide a non-traditional training opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I think for a lot of especially circus teachers that I speak to that is one of the big things that draws them to circus over sport anyway is that ability to be able to modify and change things in a really interesting way so that they're able to do things that don't have to comply with any specific rules so I think that's a really interesting one I'm quite realistic the students really enjoy being in class and on discipline. They don't necessarily enjoy doing the uh, additional conditioning and physical training that you know, I would host. I'm okay with that. I understand that. And yeah, it's the same in all those other sports that I've worked in. Most athletes, most artists do what they do because they enjoy it, not because they want to spend extra time doing uh, training with Aaron. I understand that. Um, but if you can manipulate their training to provide them with a training response and they don't have to spend time you know, doing online classes you know, or doing additional sessions in the gym or doing you know, a class and then going straight to do their, you know, you know, their conditioning afterwards, then you know, I think it gives you an opportunity to um, you know, you know, win understanding, win influence you know, and win you know, training adaptations with that student artist. Yeah, I imagine the closer you can get what the kind of thing that you do, the closer you can make it look to like what they do on their discipline anyway, that actually might bring adaptations a little quicker or make the adaptations a little bit more specific to what they're doing anyway. I've definitely taken advantage of the dynamic correspondence of some exercises to their disciplines. Um, but I would often do that um, not just to appease the student and the teacher, but also to then win you know, an opportunity to do some less obvious, less specific um, training at some point in the future when they understand you know, why they're doing what they're doing because you've developed this good relationship. You know, I think that gives you a great opportunity to you know, really develop their physicality. Yeah, exactly. And so we've looked at this a uh, little bit in how the, the training similar. Let's talk now about these rest periods then. So or degree students or any kind of high-level circus students so they might not necessarily be on a degree course they might be on some kind of intensive course maybe they're a youth circus student who trains multiple times a week so it's quite a high training load uh, whether or not they're aspiring to be professionals eventually when we get into the end of July here and our buildings gonna be closed for six weeks what do we think for these circus students what is going to be the ideal approach to this time off I remember when I was doing this circus degree program myself a long time ago the advice that we were given was those six weeks you need to be having complete rest it's you've done enough in your circus discipline for an entire year and now you need six weeks of absolutely nothing so that when we start again the next year we're ready to to sort of go in heavy go in hard and uh 
we've we're not going to put ourselves at risk of injury. Now, it sounds already we've discussed a few things that actually you might not necessarily recommend that people drop to six full weeks of rest. But do you think it would some kind of rest period where the where students do nothing? Do you think that's appropriate, or and maybe where would that be? In is that at the beginning of the holiday? Is that at the end, or should it be interspersed in between? What do you think about that? So I'm not sure how many of our students will actually be listening to this podcast, but if they were, I would suggest that at least the first week of their six week break. Yeah, they should try and do no physical training at all. And then over the next two or three weeks, yeah, try to do something maybe two or three times in a week to try and maintain their, uh, yeah, their health and well-being. Yeah, and then slowly in the last two weeks build up yeah, yeah, the volume and the intensity of the work they were doing so that by the time they come back to school at the start of September, yeah, they have got some level of yeah, readiness and conditioning um, so that then they are able to then do you know, the volume and training you know, and the types of training that they were expected to do when they come into school. And is there any guidance on what kinds of training might be better than others? So, for example, if I'm a rope artist, would it be best for me to stick with rope or is actually might it be better to branch out and maybe I go to other aerial equipment so I'm performing similar movements but in a different way would that potentially reduce the risk of injury or should I even take it further and maybe look at acrobatics or juggling or maybe dancing or climbing or horse riding or something that's completely uh, detached from from what I'm doing what do you think uh, in would be best in terms of what kinds of training people would should get up to so just from the context of being a physical trainer um, not having been a performer or a teacher just from the context of being a physical trainer uh, and not a circus student or a circus teacher or a circus performer uh, I could definitely see the value of trying different disciplines and yeah, challenging your skill set rather than just doing more of the same discipline that you would ordinarily do lots of throughout the year. That said, yeah, it would be really good if the circus students would speak to their teachers and their teachers set them some specific things that they might also need to do during that long summer holiday. Yeah, I guess it also depends on how specific their training is. So even though students might be full, training full-time. I know our own degree students, like you said, in the first year, they have a bit more training variability than in the second or third year, for example, and maybe in other schools or other places, actually full-time circus training might actually look like a very diversified skill set where you might be doing bits of everything. So I guess uh, for those students, maybe they're already looking at lots of things and uh, they, they might want to get a bit more specific for a while or maybe the highly specialized students, as you said, might want to look at a range of different things. And I think in my own research of learning how to learn and the ways that the brain processes information the best, it does really seem like having a wider experience of skills, not necessarily being really good a lot of skills but having a broader breadth of experience and having tried many different things really helps people to excel at the one or two things that they want to specialize in specifically so I guess there's two sides to weigh up to that I was wondering as well given that these students for the most part are likely to be training uh, as you said not with their current discipline teacher or not with their current circus teacher maybe they're going doing classes with other teachers who don't know them very well or maybe they're just training on their own completely unsupervised whether that's conditioning you know strength and flexibility work or maybe it's going to a bouldering wall and, and, and trying out climbing are there any risks in in that in that uh if you're used to being supervised all the time and then you go into an environment where actually you're required to make all the all of the decisions and make all of your own choices about what kinds of training you do 
are you putting yourself more at risk of being injured? And if so, how would you go about mitigating that? That's a really great question, James. I suppose the best answer is it depends. Um, there's plenty of value to training independently and you know, plenty of um, transferable benefits to learning a new skill. However, I suppose the greatest risk is that you don't necessarily understand the mechanical load you know, or the you know, physical challenge of that skill and it may end up being that you do too much in a short space of time which may increase your risk of um, uh, uh, injury. Yeah, so I guess it could be a good idea if you're planning on reducing the intensity and frequency of your training anyway then actually maybe it's fine maybe that's giving you enough scope to be able to kind of push your own boundaries and see what's working and what isn't whereas if you were to try to keep the intensity of the training the same while getting rid of the the teachers and supervisors and coaches and mentors that you're used to working with actually that's when you might put yourself maybe at more risk or in a slightly more dangerous position absolutely well yeah when we talked earlier about other sports um yeah in preparation for big competitions or tournaments yeah they would taper their training they would tend to taper the frequency of training the volume of training but the intensity of training would tend to remain so any training they would do it would still be of a high quality um, and I suppose we could apply the same principle to you know, the students on their summer break yeah, or you know, performing artists generally. If you're going to have a period of low training frequency and low training volume, you probably want to maintain some kind of training quality. Um, yeah, also, it's important to remember that when you go back to your discipline at the start of a new term, you're going to be... Yeah, yeah, standing on your hands or hanging from your hands or yeah, um, yeah, hanging from yeah, uh, flex joints quite a lot. And if you haven't done any of that for the preceding yeah, four to six weeks, yeah, that's going to be quite a shock to yeah, that, yeah, that area of the body. So maintaining some kind of um, uh, exposure to that challenge, some kind of load in that way, probably mitigates the risk of it being a problem when you start to go back to more formal training at the start of term yeah that makes total sense and so i was wondering that all makes sense on what to do if you're a full-time circus student or if you've got quite heavy training loads i'm also aware that that might not be everyone who's listening to this so we've sort of said if this is what you do full time, if you're training very often and a lot, that these are our guidelines to, well, when your building closes down, uh, this might be the way that you approach it. What about for the others? What about for, I'm imagining the circus hobbyists, whether this is ch children or adults on recreational programs, people that used to maybe do it professionally and now it's just something that they engage in from time to time or people that have only just got into this recently the main thing i'm wondering is are the rules just the same but more watered down so for example should we treat somebody who does circus once a week the same as somebody who does it five times a week and just taper off the the loads by a proportional amount or just by the fact that that person is doing less training in the first place, would they be fine the whole way through the summer to just keep hammering uh, circus? Would they even be benefit from going on an intensive course? Or is that likely to pose the same risks to them as a professional circus artist then going and doing a six-week intensive straps course on their time off? Yeah, that's certainly a challenge uh, in somebody that is used to doing one training session a week yeah, yeah, in a participation class, signing up for a week-long intensive course. Um, yeah, they may have the fundamental skills to participate, but they might not necessarily have yeah, the, the capacity to train yeah, at high intensities for five days in a row. Um, 
I would like to think that the organiser of the uh, intensive week will have um, moderated the intensity um, of sessions throughout that week so they're not necessarily doing demanding classes back to back to back within each day and between days but yeah that's when yeah maximizing the rest yeah yeah in the evenings between days both in terms of uh, fueling yeah um yeah stretching um and yeah and sleeping yeah becomes important to allow them to get through the rest of that week yeah you know learning a skill enjoying the process yeah and being able to operate you know normally the week after yeah okay so in actual fact maybe where you were recommending a week of rest after the end of term for those full-time students would you maybe say it's after that summer camp or intensive training uh, maybe a week of rest might be the the optimal approach there absolutely i like the parallel and i think i think you're probably right if if they're not used to doing something as long and uh, intense as a week of training then yes i think yeah they do need to you know, you know plan that rest yeah you know, in the week after to yeah you know, to allow that recovery yeah you know, allow that adaptation to occur yeah, and allow them to then go back to their you know, participation classes with no uh, no additional problems. Yeah, and then so I was wondering also, as we talked about with the circus artists or the student artists, that they might put themselves more at risk of injury by the fact that their coaches disappear and they're left to their own devices when people are doing this as a hobby maybe it's a bit less likely that they're going to end up working totally on their own but one of the things I was wondering about was changes to people's daily routines so the summer holidays are normally a time when some aspect of your life will change either it's if you're at school your school term ends if you're at work well maybe your kids now have time off school you're you're gonna have some changes to how your day runs is that going to change how you train if if you keep doing your circus classes as they were will that put you more at risk of injury just by the fact that uh you're dealing with a different daily routine from now the concept of routine is a a good one and an important one and yes you can change your routine but you also need to factor in yeah the implications to the other parts of your um yeah training process so um you still need to think about yeah fueling and yeah the timing of the yeah, yeah fueling and you still need to think about maintaining energy levels throughout the day and you still need to think about taking recovery between sessions and you still need to consider um sleep and how much sleep you're getting because if you are changing routine um, by increasing your workload, it's going to have a knock-on in terms of how much fuel you need in your body and how much recovery you need between sessions. Likewise, if it's a holiday and you haven't got to get up for school or for work, so you're going to bed later, but you're probably going to wake up at or around the same time, you're getting less sleep, so less recovery, that's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of your ability to train at your fullest in your next session and if you start the week like that and each day yeah is chipping away more and more and more in terms of your capacity to train you're going to be left at the end of the week yeah running on fumes so uh, yes changing the routine per se is okay as long as you consider yeah the implications to the other components to yeah the training process yeah namely uh, uh, fueling and recovery so it's more a case of having an awareness around it rather than uh, having to avoid anything specifically. I think so. I think it's the best way to look at it, yeah. Cool. All right. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about, we've kind of touched on how to deal with things while we're away. Well, at some point, we're then going to find ourselves coming back to training. So I've had a couple of... Uh, students in the past uh, well actually quite a few students in the past that normally talk about dreading the holiday period like dreading the fact that the school's going to close and it's specifically because they're going to be so much worse when they come back there's always this presumption of 
by the time I get back to the building, I won't be able to do any of the skills that I was able to do before. And they kind of go into the holiday period with that kind of panic about it. So I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on how do, how do we deal with that? Like, should we expect after any break period, should we just automatically assume we're going to be worse? And if so, how does how does that look? And then I guess what can we do about that once it once it happens? With the majority of students, if they have rested fully at some point and they have maintained some kind of level of activity uh, just for their general health and well-being for a few weeks and then they've slowly started to incorporate some more circus-based training for yeah probably the two weeks prior to return to school they could and should feel great when they walk back in the door there will definitely be students that haven't done as much and they may well feel like they physically are not ready to undergo the um, yeah, the demands of you know, the first term. Um, there will probably be students that haven't rested enough and they may not feel ready to undergo those same you know, demands as well. I suppose the question I would ask is, yeah, in what way do they feel worse? Yeah. Are they unable to do the same repertoire of skills and tricks that they did at the end of the last term? Yeah, or do they feel that physically they're not strong enough or they don't have the capacity to do the work that they know is required of them? Um, if they have uh, taken the opportunity to rest fully and they have maintained some level of activity yeah, in the first few weeks, uh, after that and then gradually incorporated more circus-based training I would hope that they return to school in a position that they are physically able to undertake the work but if they've not been practicing some of the skills I can definitely see why they might feel like they're not ready um, uh, and that's then the skill and the art of, you know, of the circus teacher to gradually incorporate those you know, those skills back into their you know, into their classes and their training routines. That's really interesting actually and I think that is something that people don't always consider as well is that when they're leaving the term and just assuming that they're going to be worse when, when they come back actually I'm not always convinced that when they come back they actually have checked or they have done some sort of testing that would would show this and I think one of the problems in circus is again because we're not so used to the metrics and uh, numbers that the sports world is we sort of assume all right I was able to do my backflip or back handspring before and so I should just definitely be able to do it when I come back and that's not necessarily a metric of, of strength or flexibility uh, you could just you know back handsprings go through a cycle of some days they're really good some days they're not and you're you have variability in your performance of complex skills anyway so maybe actually it's a, fa a matter of being able to find some benchmarks and figure out have i actually lost all my strength or is it just that uh, I, I need a few days to get back into the flow of things it's interesting you're yeah you know it is interesting you're, you're right we we don't necessarily have the same um, ability to measure some of the physical capacities um, of our students here at the school as you might do if you were working with a professional sports team uh, however there are still things that we can do to kind of to demonstrate to them that they haven't lost all of their physical qualities and we would do that in that first week of term um, scientifically after a week of no training at all yeah, there should be no difference in terms of your physiological or physical capabilities. Uh, in actual fact, you, you might find that you feel better for having had the rest. Um, two weeks of no training, uh, there might be a slight reduction yeah, in your maximum oxygen uptake, but, yeah, but again, no change in terms of your strength profile, although you may feel like yeah, your yeah, muscle tone has reduced or you're not quite as strong. Uh, four weeks of training, again, you're conditioning may have reduced may up to 10% maybe um, but in terms of your you know, your absolute strength qualities yeah again not you know much noticeable change at all so it's only perceived 
reduction in your uh, uh, strength that would be a problem, not necessarily your actual strength ability. Okay, so that's interesting. And I also thought it was interesting that you mentioned that you had the students who did nothing might feel like they were coming back in worse off, as well as the students who did too much. So actually uh, keeping the intensity levels a bit more moderate is probably the better strategy there if we want to feel good when we come back to training in the first place. Finding that sweet spot for um, yeah, each student between not enough and too much yeah, is a challenge and the more you get to know the students and the more you understand the disciplines is definitely key um, but I think it's something we should definitely work towards yes. And in terms of students feeling great uh, thing I've noticed in terms of myself when I have a break but also I've had plenty of students report this to me is that first day back everybody again we're all dreading coming back into training and then it's suddenly this huge surprise is oh hang on uh, actually it's really good I, I can jump way higher uh, I can I can move faster I can go for much longer um, I was wondering if you had any idea what that might be like is that just an adrenaline rush and if it is or whatever it is is it good to embrace that is it good to say hey on my first day back I'm gonna have a ton of energy and I should just use it all up as as uh, I might feel like I want to or should I realize that actually by using up all that energy I might start to feel worse in the coming days or weeks after I think that's a great personal reflection James uh, and yeah I have no doubt that students returning to familiar surroundings and getting back into a routine and being able to get on discipline uh, and catching up with all their friends um, I think yeah there's definitely going to be an emotional high um, I think yeah the risk is that they go from a very low training volume uh, and intensity in the few weeks before to a very high training frequency yeah in the first few weeks of term yeah that needs to be managed carefully um, so the students need to be made aware of that uh, as do the uh, the teachers in terms of the organization of with each session and within a day and across the first few weeks to kind of really moderate and mitigate the risk um, yeah of, of uh, overreaching and overtraining and, and uh, uh, an injury great so we're drawing towards the end of our podcast now so just wanted to very quickly do a bit of a recap and sum up some of the things that we were talking about today so we looked at how professional athletes deal with breaks away from training and how actually they might still have some level of activity at all times and it really it's more about managing the intensity of that activity in a way that allows them to get back into training whenever it's time without them having lost too much ground and in a way that helps them get back on track as quickly as possible. We talked about what might be required for full-time circus artists during the summer period that actually their coach may set them some work. They might also want to have a week of rest followed by some slightly lower levels of intensity exercise and that might be around disciplines that they're familiar with but actually there could be some huge benefit to looking at alternative skills or alternative disciplines whether that's in circus or beyond and while that might be true for the full-time circus artists maybe for the recreational artists and the circus hobbyists um, this might be a chance for you to go into you know an intensive circus course you might be able to go into a circus summer camp just be aware that it's those periods from super low intensity to super high intensity so low intensity compared to what you're used to to much higher intensity compared to what you're used to is where we set ourselves uh, most likely risk for injuries so those really do need to be dealt with carefully and that maybe we might want to take a week of rest afterwards finally coming back just be aware that your strength 
uh, might not have reduced as far as you're worried that it is going to. If you can keep some moderate levels of exercise throughout your time off, you should expect that you can get back into the flow of things much more easily, but that the intensity of things as you get back into it, you still want to ramp that up at a steady pace. You don't necessarily want to hit the ground heavy because you've had a lot of time resting. This is your time to get back familiar with your routine and build on things from there. So I really hope for those of you listening, whatever your role in circus may be, whether you're a full-time student or hobbyist or even a circus teacher, that some of this information has been useful and you're going to be able to use it to improve circus training when you don't have access to your building and your space and on those kind of longer holiday periods. I'd like to thank you, Aaron, for coming and uh, talking to me today. That's been really enlightening and uh, really enjoyed the comparisons that we've been able to make through the sports world and the circus world. And I really hope that this is something that we can use to inform how to do things like our rest periods a little bit better than we have in the past. No, thank you, James. Thank you for inviting me along. It's actually my first ever podcast, so thank you for being such a yeah, supportive yeah, host. Yeah, uh, I look forward to uh, look forward to the next podcast, another opportunity to help um, yeah, explain some of the yeah, scientific approaches to training that you know, the students and the performers might be able to employ. Amazing. And on that note, we will wrap things up. So thanks again to everyone for listening, and we will see you next time.